So the Persian Jewish community is probably the oldest continuous Jewish community in the world that still exists today. It began more than 2,700 years ago with the exile of Jews from northern Israel by the Assyrian emperor Shalmaneser. While it's been greatly depleted over the years, particularly in the last 50 years or um, uh, more than 40 years since the uh, revolution, but there is still a sizable Jewish community today. The numbers seem to be disputed. You can't seem to find a definitive number. Um, There's somewhere between... 10,000 and 25,000 Jews still there today, some very assimilated, some very strongly Jewish, um, but there, are, there is still a very sizable Jewish community there in um, Iran, as it's called today, or Persia today. So this community has lasted for a very, very, very long time. There is probably no other community that is as old that has been continuously in the same place um, throughout all of history. But while the community has lasted for a very long time, very little is known about it and its long history. Um, When I did research for this class, I was surprised by how little information is actually known. Um, Most of it is what we'd call dark periods in history, where we really don't know much about the Jewish community. Um, There's very, very little known, very, very little recorded. Um, surprisingly, I mean, except for the last 200 years, but until then, um, there's very little known. Um, One of the challenges, and we'll soon see more in detail, was that until 700 years ago, Iran, as it's called today, um, or Persia, was politically and culturally tied to Babylonia from a Jewish perspective, the great center of Jews, And it wasn't really considered a distinctive area or a distinctive community on its own. And we did a class some time ago about the Jews of Babylon, and we have the podcast about a year or two ago. So the first Jews came to Persia with the exile of the Assyrians, which was some 150 years before the destruction of the first temple. In our counting, we were going back about 2,700 years. Um, It's still Persia at the time is part of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians captured northern Israel. They had this policy of mixing people around, moving tribes and nations around to get them all to assimilate into a single Assyrian culture. Um, That way they they don't have rebellious tribes. They moved most of the Jews out of northern Israel, moving them to various areas in the Assyrian Empire. Some of them they moved to Elam, which is um, north Western modern-day Iran. Um, the, um, later, the temple was destroyed. This is going fast-forwarding, 150 years, the temple is destroyed. The entire Jewish community in Israel is now exiled by the Babylonians to Babylon, which has now taken over the vast Assyrian Empire, covers again this vast Middle Eastern region, Um, The Babylonian Empire was also, like the Assyrians, Aramaic-speaking. The Jews are spread out in this Babylonian Empire. Most Jews end up settling in Babylon itself. Babylon is modern-day Iraq, the area of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So that region was where primarily the Jews settled. That was the center of Jewish life in the um, in, in in the Babylonian Empire. However, Jews also moved further east. 
and Jews were already at this point living in what today is known as Persia, um, in um, Farsi-speaking lands, Farsi-speaking regions. Slowly, Jews stopped speaking Hebrew, and Jews throughout the Babylonian Empire began to speak Aramaic, which became, again, there was a campaign that people should not speak other languages, just speak Aramaic. And so that became the primary language of the Jews for the next thousand years throughout the entire area of the Babylonian Empire, um, going from Asia Minor, Turkey, down to, um, down to Israel and Egypt, all the way over to um, ba Syria, Babel um, Iraq, Iran, all Jews in throughout these regions, their spoken language throughout this period was Aramaic. So a couple decades later, Babylon itself is captured by, according to our traditions, by Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, creating what um, scripture terms as Mahut Paras Umadai, the Persian Mede Empire. When we did our class a few months ago about the Persian Empire, we went through the two distinctive historical accounts of how, how the Persian Empire worked. I'm not going to get into that right now, but definitely refer back to it. The capital of this new empire, which essentially has taken over the Babylonian Empire, it is an empire that at its height stretches from Greece all the way to India. Um, the central part of the empire is what had been previously the Babylonian Empire, which was in the Fertile Crescent, an area that covered Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, um, those countries, and the people in all these areas spoke, Ar spoke Aramaic. That's where Jews lived primarily at this time, but Jews are spread throughout the empire. The capital of this new empire is Shushan, or today Susa, um, and many Jews move to Shushan as the city grows. And some are involved with the government. Notable is Daniel, who was already a noble in the Babylonian government and uh, described in the book of Daniel. He followed the emperor Darius to Shushan and he over there becomes prominent in the Persian government. Mordechai from the story, and his cousin Esther, who's his adopted daughter, are in Shushan. Um, they end up in Shushan. How they got there, the Midrash tells us that actually Mordechai had been, the, in the story of the Megillah, it tells us, in the story of the es book of Esther, it tells us that Mordechai had been exiled to Babylon together with the Jews um, in the first stage of exile. There were a couple different exiles. There were two primary, primary exiles. He went with the first group with King Yechania. He was exiled to Babylon. But the Midrash tells us that he went back up when Cyrus, this is before the story of, the, of Purim, when Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to Israel and rebuild the temple. Um, Mordechai went back to Israel to rebuild the temple. There was conflict with other, uh, with Samaritans and other non-Jews in the region. And um, Mordechai was sent, the Midrash tells us, that Mordechai was sent by the Jews as a lobbyist to Shushan to lobby on behalf of the Jews in Israel. And that's how he ended up in Shushan. So it was there when he's in Shushan that Esther is forcibly taken to the palace, forced to marry the Persian emperor Ahasuerus, and becomes the queen. She used her position to save the people from, Mom, from Haman, and Mordechai becomes the visor of the Persian Empire, the, um, the, essentially the, the, the person directly under the king in charge of the Persian Empire. Later we uh, learn about, in the book of Ezra, we learn about Nehemiah, 
who was the king's cupbearer. Um, and he, um, the cupbearer apparently was one of the most powerful positions in the Persian Empire. They were essentially the, they were the cupbearer because it was their job to taste the wine before the king drank it to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. That was their job. Um, and the, the Talmud says that Nehemiah got a special dispensation from the Sanhedrin to be able to drink the non-kosher wine. Um, and, uh, but he was the, uh, but apparently it was also the cupbearer was the king's personal secretary. As the king's personal secretary essentially was the person in charge of everything, you know, everyone who came in and out of the king was one of the most powerful people um, in the empire. So although the Jews went back to, so Nehemiah asks for a request to go back, to go to Jerusalem, and he is appointed by the emperor um, as governor over Judea. So though Jews go back to Israel to build the second temple, most Jews remain in Babylon. Babylon itself, Iraq, remains the center of Jewish life throughout much of the Jewish, the second temple. Jews though live throughout the Persian Empire, um, all, uh, all ends of the Persian Empire, including in Persia itself. Um, which was kind of the eastern part of the Persian Empire, particularly in Shushan, the capital, which had now become a great kind of capital center, um, as well as, uh, but throughout the Persian Empire. Um, the Persian Empire falls to the forces of Alexander, the Macedonian. He leads the Greek forces to the Persian Empire, to take over the Persian Empire. He essentially turns the Persian Empire into a Greek empire, um, settles in Shushan, in Susa, makes it his capital, um, uh, and even uh, marries a Persian princess to um, kind of be the, see him, sees himself as the continuation of the Persian Empire. Um, Alexander dies not long after without, um, without children. The uh, empire, the Alexand Alexander's empire is split between his various generals. Um, Persia itself, along with um, along with, with Iraq or Babylon, become part of the Seleucid Empire. So the Seleucid Empire is based in Antioch, which was just in the news because what was left of the city was destroyed um, in, a, um, in that earthquake a couple weeks ago. But, the, um, but it's based in Antioch, which is all the way on the, uh, on the coast uh, or near the coast of the Mediterranean, but it stretches all the way and covers Persia. During this period, um, the um, people, the leaders, the military, the aristocrats, the leaders are now Hellenists. There is a Hellenization throughout all the various Greek kingdoms, um, the Ptolemies in Egypt, the, who control the land of Israel as well, the Seleucids, who control Syria, Iraq, and Iran, and modern-day Iran. Um, there is this Hellenization where there is an encouragement to speak Greek, um, and Greeks settle throughout these areas, including in Persia itself. However, Jews continue to speak Aramaic. For Jews, the, their spoken language was Aramaic. They remained Jewish, although they were under Hellenistic influence. Do they still speak it? Who? Does anybody speak Aramaic today? Does anybody? Very few. But there, are, there were Jewish communities in Kurdistan who spoke Aramaic till very recently. We did a class about Aramaic a little while ago. Um, we spoke about the history of Aramaic. Um, but uh, there were Jews till recently, but as we'll see, most Jews changed. We'll, we'll tell the story. So about 100 years later, 
Um, there was a Persian tribe, a northern Persian tribe called the Parthians that rebelled and gradually they conquer. The Parthians conquer lot, much of the Seleucid Empire. They conquer um, all of Persia and then eventually all of Mesopotamia. Um, now, once again, um, Persia is controlled by Persian-speaking peoples um, that were Persian-speaking. Still, for some period, it appears the aristocrats were Greeks at this point. The Jews, though, in both Persia and Babylon, continued to be Aramaic-speaking. Jews lived in many cities across Persia at this time. However, the... Um, However, the center of Jewish life remained in uh, the center of Jewish life was in um, in, in, ba in Babylon, and the Jews, the communities in Persia, were essentially periphery communities, communities that were associated with the central community led by the Reish Galuta. There was, and we spoke about it. When we did the class on the Babylonian communities. There were. Um, the Babylonian community was led by a Reshkelotai, prince of the exile, essentially a Jewish prince, descendant of the house of David, who was the um, leader of all Jews, the civil leader of all Jews. They were led, there were great central yeshivas in Babylon, um, and they were, of course, it was at this time during the Second Temple period, still the um, Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council in Israel, that had ultimate um, religious um, authority over all Jews. But the Jewish community in Persia, again, was still a periphery community, a um, community within the Babylon, greater Babylonian Jewish community. Um, following the destruction... Yes? I'm sorry, two questions. Shushan is the name of the city? Yes. Okay, I, I might have missed it. Is that still existing? Yes. Yes. No, it's called Susa in modern... Susa. Susa. Oh, so that's... It's in southern Europe. That's a very good question. So the Parthians were, yeah, they were, they had, the Parthians were not very religious people or did not really care about religion. They did not get involved in people's religion. There were many different religions at the time in the Babylonian Empire where there ancient Babylonian gods. Um, Zoroastrianism, which had taken hold some time earlier. Um, Jews, of course. So there were many and probably many other, there were, there were Hindus, um, Buddhists. Uh, there were many different peoples, uh, religions in under the Parthian rule, no. It was pretty, and Jews had it pretty good under Parthian rule. And it was really at, during this time that life got really difficult for Jews in Israel, the other great Jewish center, um, and other parts of the Roman Empire, because Jews had um, suffered a lot under the Romans that led to two rebellions, one that led to the destruction of the temple, then a second rebellion under Bar Kokhba, then a, followed by a period of Shman where Judaism was banned, um, for a period in the Roman Empire. And so many Jews during this period fled to um, Babylon, where there was a very large, successful Jewish community. Um, Jews were living throughout the Parthian Empire pretty peacefully. They took care of their own affairs. They had total autonomy, total control of their own internal affairs. Nobody bothered them. Nobody asked them anything. Um, you know, nobody, uh, everybody let them um, kind of li live, live in peace. Um, so many Jews fled to the to Babylon and to throughout the Parthian Empire at that time. Um, the um, uh, during this uh, um, 
um, then later Rome, uh, Christians grew in the land of Israel in the early 200s and Jews faced even greater persecution and by the early 200s um, many many Jews huge numbers of Jews moved to Babylon really allowing Babylon to eclipse the land of Israel as really the new center of, of Judaism and it really became from the early 200s um, for the next 800 years, Babylon was the center of Judaism. Again, purchased outside of Babylon, but its communities are Aramaic-speaking, and their students are studying in the schools in Babylon. Their rabbis are coming from Babylon, and they're very much kind of associated with the Babylonian Jewish community. In the third, early 3rd third century, the Parthians are overthrown by, uh, in the early 200s, by another Persian group known as the Sassanids. Now, the Sassanids were radical Zoroastrians. Zoroastrian was a religion um, that worshipped fire and worshipped, um, or believed in kind of in a fire and believed in kind of this duality. Um, it had some similarities to the monotheism of Judaism, but not entirely monotheistic, uh, maybe some more similarities to Christianity. But it was a popular religion in the region at the time. And the Sassids were Zoroastrian, but they were not just Zoroastrian, but they were radical Zoroastrians, and they made Zoroastrianism the official um, religion of their empire. And life as a result became a lot more difficult for Jews, in, both in Babylon and Persia and throughout the Sassanid Empire. At the same time, in the Roman Empire, further to the west, there was even greater Persecution. So Jews were still fleeing Rome to come to the Sassanid Empire, but life was not so good. Jews lost some of their autonomy. Jews lost some of their freedoms. Um, and um, they had regular persecution. There were regular moments of persecution. Um, and there were bans on certain Jews doing certain things. At that point, Jews had to pull the menorah inside on Hanukkah. We used to have our menorahs outside because the Sassanids didn't allow Jews to light fires outdoors because that was because they worshipped fire um, so we pulled our menorah and there were other issues that they had um, with Jewish practice um, that they banned in 636 the um, Caliph Omar who was the successor to Mohammed and, um, um, and uh, leading the Muslims who had become the new, the new religion that had taken over Arabia um, Caliph Omar conquered the Sassanid Empire and now Jews were now all found in this new Arab empire. The Arab was known as the Caliphate. Um, the center of this Caliphate became Baghdad, which was in what had been Babylonia or Iraq. Um, the, um, and, it very, and it very quickly grows. It spreads very, very far east, as far as going all the way to India. It spreads very, very far west, eventually making it all the way to Morocco and to Spain. It becomes a very, very large empire. Um, the language in this empire is Arabic, and while there's a lot of forced conversion, and most people end up converting to Islam at the beginning, um, Jews remain steadfast to Judaism. And Jews and Christians and others and Zoroastrians are allowed to live with, although there's, very, there's much less of them, are allowed to live within the caliphate. Um, uh, but they're second-class citizens, and they have to pay a special second-class citizen tax, and there are limits they're not allowed to, they're not that's generally why, allowed to. That's why they didn't want to convert them. Yes, they, uh, that's why they, uh, they, they were not allowed to um, hold positions of power, and there were various other limits. At a certain point, they kicked them off the land. Jews in Babylon and throughout Persia were farmers until then, and so they kicked them off much of the land. 
um, at first. <coughs> However, soon the, with time, the Muslims became extremely tolerant and extremely open, and Jews really gained a lot of freedom. And this was really the golden age of Jews in Babylon. Um, and Jews really lived very freely um, in this, uh, during this period, during the next couple hundred years. This was a period where Jews lived among Muslims, Christians, Zoroastrians. Each of them splintered into many sects. In fact, the trouble that the Jews had during this period was not from, they're not, not from the non-Jews, but from Jews themselves. Um, because of the great freedom in religion at this time, um, after the initial um, Muslim conquest, um, there was a rise of Jewish sects. Um, there was, uh, the most notable one was the Karaites, um, which was a, a Jewish sect that rose in Babylon in the 700s. Uh, but there were a rise of other kind of breakaway Jewish sects, as had been, this, had, this wasn't the first time it happened, it happened also under the Romans, towards the end of the Second Temple period, when Christianity was created. Uh, but there were other groups um, that rose, and this was particularly true in Persia. Persia was a little further away from the Jewish center in Babylon. So in the center, it was hard to get away with um, you know, her heretical beliefs and heretical groups. Um, couldn't get away with it as easily. But in smaller cities, in smaller towns, smaller Jewish communities, um, there was less enforcement and they were, they were further away from the center of Judaism. And so there were, we have records of a number of different various messianic groups and the like that rose during this um, period. This was also a time Persia at the same time was home to um, Shia growth. There were many, many different Shia. The Shia themselves were a group that splintered from the Sunnis um, then in the 600s. Um, around this area in um, Iraq, were kind of where the center of Islam was at the time. And uh, the Shia themselves then sub-splintered within the first century into dozens of different small subgroups. Um, and uh, they were always a minority, a smaller group, but they, uh, they sub-splinter into many, many, many different groups. And so that splintering was particularly notable in Persia. And so there, there were many, many, many different religious groups at the time, Islamic groups, um, Christians, Zoroastrians sub-split into different groups, and so Jews struggled then as well. Um, in 1940, sorry, 945, the um, caliphate was taken over by, by now the caliphate was kind of disintegrating, and the caliphate was taken over by the Bayoud family, which was a family, actually a Shia family, a family of radical Shias. Um, at the same time, another Shia family took over the caliphate in North Africa, the, um, the Fatmids. However, while the Fatmids were a very open and um, tolerant group, um, the, the Buyids were not, and they really began to persecute the Jewish community. And this really led to a decline in the Jewish community, both in Babylon and in Persia, many Jews fled westward towards the Fatmid Caliphate in Egypt and um, North Africa, Spain, um, which was much, much more tolerant. Um, in 1055, the region fell under the Seljuks, which were a, um, which were a Turkic group. Um, they, um, and it really ushered in a period of, um, in the late 11th century, a period of um, destabilization, of um, war and chaos. Um, there were the Crusaders came, they didn't reach Iraq or Persia, they reached mostly Israel. 
but and then there were other Turkic warring groups during this period. Um, and Jews, as a result, were suffering, and so many Jews moved westward, and it really led to the diminishing of the Jewish community. Um, they still had sizable Jewish communities. The Babylonian Jewish community at the time um, in the 12th century was estimated by travelers to be about 250,000 Jews. So it was still a very sizable community for that period. Um, that was you know, one of the largest communities in the world, but nothing compared to what it had been. Uh, the Persian Jewish, Jewish community, there's various kind of wild estimates from 50,000 to 200,000 Jews in Persia itself. Um, and so, but throughout this time, the Persian Jewish community is really still on the periphery of the, uh, their, you know, Jews are living in cities throughout Persia. Persia is very spread out. Um, you know, it's it very kind of, um, it's not densely inhabited. Um, there are towns and cities all across um, what today is known as Iran. And the Jews live throughout these ta various towns and cities, as opposed to in Mesopotamia, in, in Iraq, where everyone lives in this very narrow strip of land in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley area. And, uh, and it's very, very heavily Jewish, very, very large centralized Jewish community spread out among towns and cities, but within a very close geographic area. So the Persian Jews are really at this point still considered an extension of the Babylonian Jews, speaking Aramaic speaking, same language as Babylonians. They go to school in Babylon. The, their scholars are from Babylon. The rabbis are from Babylon. In the mid-13th century, the Mongols invaded from the east. They captured Persia, and Jews are now under a new rule of the Mongols. At first, they were not Muslim, but a few decades later, the Mongol rulers did convert to Islam. More importantly, as the Mongols headed further west, they wiped out the entire city of Baghdad, and really they depopulated almost all of Mesopotamia. So they almost totally depopulated that region. Totally destroying the very large Jewish community in the area. Essentially wiping out the very, very long-standing Babylonian Jewish community. Terrible tragedy, um, terrible event. It led to there were no Jews in, or very few, if any, in Mesopotamia itself. Kurdistan still had old Jewish communities, but not in, you know, in the mountains um, between Iraq, Iran, and Turkey, but, um, but in the um, Tigris-Euphrates Valley was almost entirely depopulated and um, almost no Jews left. So as a result now, Jews are still living in Persia under what is now, what had been Mongol, but now um, um, Islamic Mongol rule. And um, Jews in Persia are now no longer just an extension of the Babylonian community. They are on their own. They're very far away now from any sizable community. They've now become, they've gone from being part of or fairly close geographically to a very large, prominent, you know, central Jewish community to um, within, you know, a very short period to be an isolated community. They're extremely isolated now. They live on the Islamic rule. Um, the closest larger Jewish communities would be in Yemen or in Egypt. Yemen was somewhat isolated itself. Egypt was the kind of closest sizable Jewish community. Um, and there, there's a community still in, in Byzantine, in, um, which the Byzantine Empire in 
um, Turkey, what today is Turkey or Greece um, or Romanian Jewish community, those are the closest Jewish communities to them. Otherwise, um, the Persian Jewish community, which part of it includes much a greater Persian area, including Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, that whole area, as well as Afghanistan, there are Jews, and they all, but they're all isolated from Jewish communities much, much further to the West at the, during this period. Now, there was still contact, and there is always contact between Jewish communities. We never lost contact with these communities. So there was consistent contact, but it was isolated. It meant that they really had to produce their own rabbis during this period. Um, they didn't have great yeshivas in Babylon because they never built their own yeshivas. They'd always relied on Babylon. Didn't have great yeshivas, great schools. Their rabbis kind of self-studied or were taught by the local rabbi, taught students who became the next rabbi, but they didn't have great centers of learning as a result. They had never built it previously, and now they just didn't have it. Um, they didn't really have, as a result, they weren't producing you know, great scholars that most other Jewish communities were producing. They also um, went from speaking Aramaic, which had been the language of the land, now they went to speaking what the locals around them were speaking, which was mostly Farsi. And so they all began to speak Farsi, but they created, as Jews everywhere did, they created a unique Jewish Farsi dialect. Um, but it wasn't just the Jews of Iran, it was that whole region, Jews of Bukhara um, in Uzbekistan, known as Bukhari Jews, as well as Jews in Afghanistan, were essentially all speaking Farsi, um, all connected as part of the Jewish community, um, this community, but they were now far away from the other communities. They were unique. They developed their own customs. They're neither Sephardic nor Ashkenazic. They're very, very far from Spain, very, very far from, Judea, from Germany. There is contact, but it's very, very minor. In other words, there are people going back and forth, but it's not you know, the way it had been. It's not where everyone's going back and forth, where the rabbis are from there and students are going back and forth. So it, they are, they're, they're, they're fairly isolated at this point. Um, and the region then goes through many wars and turmoil. Um, there is, um, uh, th there's a lot of turmoil for the next 300 years or so in this region, which also let, made them suffer a lot until the early 1500s. In the early 1500s, the Safafids were a Shia group who took over control of Iran, uh, of what became Iran, what was then Persia. And they were Shia. Now, majority of the, everywhere throughout the Middle East, which was Islamic, throughout the Islamic world, there were Shia scattered throughout the Islamic world. But most people in everywhere were Sunni. The... Um, Safafids, who were Shia um, and took over in the early 1500s, they made Shiism the official st state religion. Not only that, they forcibly converted all the Sunni Muslims in Persia to Shia Islam. And so within a century, there were essentially no Sunnis or almost no Sunnis left in um, Persia. They persecuted anyone who wasn't Shia Muslim. There were Jews, um, there were Zoroastrians, but they were also, and there were Christians, but they were, they were persecuted. They were, um, they, uh, life was difficult. 
Um, and unlike the Sunni leaders in general had always been largely tolerant. The new version, and Shia had also been, when the uh, Fatimids in Egypt were Shia, were, they were generally tolerant. But this new version, this new Safafid version of Shiism that rose to power in the early 1500s was extremely intolerant. And it created a whole new type of Shia Islam that didn't tolerate anyone other than themselves. Anyone other than their own religion and their own beliefs. And as a result, they, um, the Shia imams now preached regularly against Jews, against heretics, non-believers. Um, they encouraged um, actively harming Jews, very similar to what was happening in Christian Europe at the time. This was largely unheard of in the Islamic. There were exceptions, but it was rare with, throughout the Islamic community. I mean, Jews suffered with everyone else, and they had always been second-class citizens and had to pay a special second-class tax and were limited to certain um, um, roles in government. But generally, Jews were okay. They were left alone. Now, there was this new kind of anti-Semitism that existed in um, Iran, in Persia, that had never really existed in the Islamic world before. Um, and there were regular anti-Jewish um, riots, pogroms, that we saw throughout Europe, had, we uh, now appear um, throughout Persia on a very regular basis, kind of the way the Eastern European Jews were living. You know, hit with regular pogroms, all it took was um, you know, an a, um, imam to rile up the locals against the Jews, and they would go to the Jewish quarter and attack. And so Jews also were thrown out of almost all jobs, similar to what had happened in Europe. They were not allowed to work in most jobs. Um, as a result, they were really only limited to being peddlers, small merchants, artisans, and that was it, similar to what had happened in Eastern Europe. Um, they couldn't own land. They, they were really very limited. And as a result, Jews became very, very impoverished. Jews were extremely poor. Even more so during this period, many Jews were forcibly converted to Islam. Now, here, um, there was one other period before that um, in history when Jews were mass forcibly converted, and that was a fanatical group similar to modern-day um, ISIS called the Almohids in the 13th century in North Africa and Spain um, that had forcibly converted Jews. And at the time, there had been a big debate. If a Jew is given a choice to convert to Islam or die, what do they do? There was a big debate about that. When it came to Christians and Jews, in, you know, starting from the Crusaders and even before that, Jews had been given that choice. When it came to Christianity, there was no question that Jews gave up their lives rather than to convert to Christianity because Christians are idolaters. Although they get offended when we say that, but the reality is that they worship another god. So, um, and we once did a class on Judaism and Christianity. We spoke about that much, much more at length in detail. But Jews would never, and the Torah requires us to give up our lives rather than worship idols. So we are, so, and Jews did that throughout our history. They, you know, Jews threatened with conversion to Christianity, gave up their lives rather than converting. But when it came to Islam, it wasn't the same because Muslims are not idolaters. They have beliefs that we disagree with. We don't believe in Mohammed. We don't believe in the Quran. But they're not idolaters. 
And so there was this big debate as to what Jews should do. And generally in Iran, when their life was threatened, um, the rabbis ruled, um, as many rabbis had ruled earlier, that Islam is not idolatry and Jews are not required to give up their lives. So they should try to stick to Judaism. But if their life is threatened, they should convert to Islam. So as a result, many, many Persian Jews did convert to Islam, um, although they continued to keep Judaism secretly. And the most notable was the community in Mashhad. Mashhad was, is a holy Shia city, and um, where holy Shia cities all have these um, Shia seminaries, so they tend to be more extreme, uh, more fanatical. And um, the um, Jews in um, and the Jews in Mashhad over multiple periods were forced to convert to Islam um, until finally mid 19th century, the entire community converted to Islam. Um, and yet they continued to have synagogues, continued to keep Judaism, as long as they went to mosque, the, um, the Muslims were okay with it. They were okay that they kept other Jewish commandments as long as they went to mosque and prayed to Mohammed and studied the and pray and <coughs> believed in Mohammed, or at least said they did, <coughs> excuse me, and studied the Quran as well. So they were these semi-crypto Jews. They weren't entirely crypto, it appears. In other words, the Muslims knew they were really Jewish, but they um, kept Islam, at least externally. Um, they did keep Islam, and this was, while Mashhad was the most famous, this was true um, in many places in, in Persia during this time. Uh, many Jews, as a result of these persecutions, left Persia, uh, moved away, um, starting in the, um, <coughs> in the uh, a little bit after this, in the uh, mid 1500s or early 1500s, the um, a little bit after, a little bit after the time that the Safavids rose to power, um, the Ottoman Empire, back in Turkey, which had taken over the Byzantines, um, captured Iraq, and once they, when they captured Iraq, Jews who had fled from Spain spread throughout the Ottoman Empire, including a very large number of Jews to Iraq, to what's now known as Iraq to Mesopotamia, Babylon. And so the Babylonian Jewish community was recreated. And the Babylonian Jewish community was with a strong Sephardic tradition and strong tradition of Jewish study, built a very, very strong community, um, built great yeshivas in Baghdad and other places once again. Um, and it became a great center. And so Jews in, many Jews in Persia moved to Iraq at the time. Um, some moved to, uh, uh, moved to Iraq. They definitely were once again influenced by the Iraqi Jewish community. Um, they were their rabbi, their students went there again to study. And as a result, the um, as a result, the Persian Jewish community now becomes heavily influenced by Sephardim, by Spanish Jews, even though Spain is very far from Iran. But the Sephardic move to the Ottoman Empire and the Sephardic settling in in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, and this large Sephardic community that had now grown in Iraq and was lar much larger than any Jews that had somehow remained in that region, um, now greatly influenced the Persian community. And their rabbis, many of them, were studying now in, um, studying now in Iraq, studying in Yeshiva in Baghdad. Um, at the same time, um, at the same time, or also in the 19th century, um, the Russian Empire, um, which grew, uh, grew, they captured much of um, the what today is kind of Central Asian states, um, Uzbekistan, uh, Bukhara, uh, which had a large 
Persian Jewish community, uh, Bukhari community. It was somewhat different, but very close. Um, and they even went, they even uh, influenced northern Iran also. They had, um, they uh, colonized parts of northern Iran. And as a result, um, the Iranian Jewish community also became influenced by the Ashkenazi community living in, um, living in, um, in the Russian Empire. Jews, uh, Russian Jews moved to Iran um, in not in very large numbers, but in some numbers. Um, Iranian Jews went to Russia, and so there was this back and forth as well. They're kind of, they're once again, they're no longer isolated, but now influenced mostly by Sephardic Jews in, uh, in Baghdad, but also, and the Ottoman Empire, but also somewhat by Ashkenazi Jews as well. Um, so, um, the, so, in the, <coughs> in the late 19th century, Western Jews um, built an organization called the Alliance. Um, the Alliance um, the, the, of um, the, is, the Israelite Alliance, it was called in France, which um, built schools all across um, the Middle East. Um, and they built schools in Iran as well. And as a result, it gave rise to secular knowledge, secularization. Um, and as a result, Jews began to be successful in Iran. They were now um, well-educated, some were well-educated, um, and began to succeed in ways, and Iran was now more open, and they began to succeed in ways that they hadn't for a couple hundred years. Um, in 1925, Reza Shah rose to power, took control of Iran, the Shah of Iran, and he granted Jews equal rights, full emancipation, and um, Jews now became extremely, extremely successful. Many of them were already well-educated. They built, continued to build schools, continued to become educated, and Jews over the next couple of decades became extremely, extremely successful in Iran. Um, the Reza Shah himself later um, allied himself with Hitler in the 1930s, um, he even decided to change the name of the country from Persia to Iran, which was the name that the Nazis loved, Aryan. Um, and that was, that was his, uh, that, um, in order to kind of, because both he and the Nazis believed that they were, the Germans and Persians were somehow related. And, um, and uh, so, and as a result, um, Iran became extremely anti-Semitic. And there was a huge rise suddenly in the 1930s of anti-Semitism. Um, Jews who had gained great freedoms and become very successful suddenly felt a huge amount of anti-Semitism. It was during this time that many Jews made Aliyah, moved to Israel, uh, moved out of Persia during this period. Um, in 1941, at the height of World War II, um, the British, um, who controlled much of the Middle East at the time, occupied Iran um, in order to stop them from become, opening another front against the Allies. Um, they, um, uh, and they removed Reza Shah from power and instead install, installed his son, Mohammed Reza Shah, as um, king, as Shah. And uh, he brought a period, he was pro-Western, he brought a very strong period of secularization to, um, to Iran. Uh, he ba banning, um, banning um, women covering their heads, banning um, Islamic dress, um, he brought a very, very strong forced secularization, and that also impacted the Jewish community, 
um, leading to a very strong secularization in Iran, um, something that hadn't really happened throughout most Islamic lands. Jews didn't face the same forced secularization that they faced in some European countries. Um, but here in Iran, they did. Um, and so, but it was also a time when Jews really, really became successful because they once again had full civil rights um, and tend to be educated. Um, and so Jews became extremely successful, most of them becoming middle class, uh, many becoming upper class and very wealthy, many rising to, powers of pro uh, pow to positions of power in the government. Um, despite being a Muslim country, Iran opened relations with Israel in 1950. Um, many Jews, Zionist Jews, moved to Israel over the next um, over the next decades, um, there, was, um, there was some level anti-Israel um, sediment among the population, but the government officially endorsed Israel, and Israel had a good relationship with them, supplied them with weapons, and there were flights back and forth, and people, Jews, traveled back and forth. Um, and it was really a, um, it was for the community, at least materially, financially, it was really a kind of a height of the um, Jewish success in Iran. Um, and yet, from a religious standpoint, it was also a time of secularization, where most Jews moved away from Judaism during this period. Well, until then, most Jews had been religious until the early 20, 20th century. Um, by, the, um, by the 1950s, 1960s, most Jews in Iran were no longer religious. So there were still strong religious communities. Most Jews had moved away from Jewish practice or had kind of kept only minimal Jewish practice. Um, 19... In 79, there was the revolution in Iran, the, um, the, um, uh, the mullahs rose to power, the, um, the, um, uh, and with the new religious leadership um, became very anti-Semitic, very anti-Israel, um, very anti-Semitic, although they supposedly respected Jews and allowed Jews to practice their religion freely, but they required their schools to study the Quran. And they required, and uh, Jews were, um, there were Jews that were killed, prominent Jews were killed, uh, were, were killed publicly. And um, there was really, there was a very strong anti-Jewish um, sentiment. As a result, the vast majority of the Jewish community fled, particularly once the Iraqi war, Iran war broke out in 1980, and everyone was being drafted into this horrific war. Most Jews fled. Um, most of them came to the United States. Most, many of them here in Los Angeles, many of them in New York in the Great Neck area. Um, some went to Israel, some went to Europe, uh, but definitely the largest Jewish community came here. Um, there were here, um, the Jewish community thrived once again and um, built their own um, communities. Um, they built their own synagogues. Um, most Jews who came out were already secular when they came out, but there were many religious Jews that came out and built religious Jewish communities. Um, here, um, interestingly, though, with the rise of um, with the rise of um, the religious leadership in Iran following the revolution, most Jews that remained in Iran became more religious, yeah. and so most Jews today there are still a significant number of Jews in Iran, um, and uh, there's a significant religious community mostly in Tehran. Um, and um, they have synagogues and kosher uh, Jewish schools and kosher eateries, and um, it's still there today, although they struggle, and um, it's not that they live under, uh, well, I guess everyone there lives under oppression, but Jews in particular are always kind of, they, they suspect them of being agents for Israel, and they've 
uh, falsely accused many over the years and arrested and killed people for do, for under such an accusation. Uh, but Jews continue to live there, um, and there is a functioning, active religious community there, although they cannot have relations with anyone in Israel. Uh, they are very limited with that. Uh, but there is still a Jewish community there, and that makes it one of the oldest Jewish communities in the world, the same place where the story of Purim happened, but it still stands today. And so if anything, the, the story of the Iranian Jewish community is really the story of our Jewish community, but it really teaches us the, um, the fact that we've, we survived so long, and despite all the tragedies and despite all the challenges, uh, we keep going. And uh, the fact that there are Iranian Jews with their own unique Iranian customs and, um, uh, and Jewish customs um, and Iranian rabbis and synagogues and communities today, um, so long after Mordechai, Esther, and the original Jews came, really speaks of the eternity to, of our people and how we are still here after so many years. <laughs>